The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Okay, if you could please do me a favor here this time, and if you could turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'd like to hear in our remaining time together, I'd like to preach to you a message um, that I believe is key. It's key for any church, um, but I'd like to preach to you a message here this evening uh, that I've entitled, The Outward Focused Church. Um, really what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a little bit of a framework uh, for how uh, 1 Corinthians itself works. I think I should be on now. I'd like to give you a little bit of a framework for uh, what 1 Corinthians, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, what it's all about. Um, and I want to zoom in on a particular chapter uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, based on the time we have, honestly, I'd like to preach that whole chapter to you. Um, but let me just say this. Every church is a unique set of people. Um, every church has unique talents, unique gifts within its midst. Each church, likewise, has its own issues, has its own weak points. Each church has areas where they excel. I've been to some churches, and they are just giving churches. I'm telling you, like, I'm not talking about love offering or stuff like that. I'm talking about a church we were at earlier on this summer. There were a couple of people in the church. They saw these teens come, and they said, you know what? We want every single teen that comes to this event to have a t-shirt. And so one person at the beginning of the week walked up to the registration table, handed $400 to my wife, and said, everybody who comes, make sure they have a shirt. Well, we had a lot of people come, and we burned through that money real quick. Another guy, a little bit later, he came up and he said, hey, listen, um, I noticed you ran out of money for that. Here's $600. We'd like for teenagers, everyone here, to have a shirt. And wow, that church was a generous church. Uh, there are other churches where when you come to those churches, they are, are warm churches. They're churches just full of super nice, kind, and caring people. There are some places where you go, you walk into the doors, and it's just like, ah, I'm home. These people, they love me. They care about me. They're not just, you know, doing their own thing, you know, cold and crusty. These people are caring people. Uh, there are smart churches. Churches where it seems like everybody in the church is a scholar. There are um, evangelistic churches where it seems like everybody in the church is leading somebody to Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes, as much as all of those things, every church is going to kind of have its own unique footprint. I want to say this. God wants every single church to be an outward-focused church. It doesn't matter necessarily what your gifts are. It doesn't matter where your strengths lie or where your weaknesses lie. God's plan for the New Testament church is not to be an inward-focused church, but to be an outward-focused church. You know, <clears throat> um, bless you. <laughs> Um, let, let, let me just say a few things about the church at Corinth. Um, a, a number of years ago, I went through a class in 1 Corinthians, got a lot of opportunities to study the background of the epistle, and on Paul's, uh, his second missionary journey, God led him through Asia Minor over to the uh, Grecian Peninsula. Uh, there at that time, it was divided into two provinces, the province of Macedonia and Achaia, and God led him down that path and all the way down to the port city of Corinth. God led him there, and God led him to preach the gospel in a very public way. 
God led him to a couple of individuals who had already lived there, Priscilla and Aquila. God, in fact, brought his team there. He preached the gospel. Lots of people got saved. Lots of people got mad. But at the end of the day, Paul spent a year and a half with these people, and it was evident that God had led him to that church and that city. Because it wasn't just that God wanted those people saved, though he did. It wasn't just that God wanted a church there in that city, though he did. It's that God had a strategy for that particular church in that particular location. As a matter of fact, just to kind of show you this geographically here, if you look in the middle of the map, you see the city of Corinth. That is the Grecian Peninsula just above it. To the east is uh, modern-day Turkey, at that time Asia Minor. To the northwest, you see Italy, you see Rome up there. If we zoom in a little bit more, you'll see that Corinth is situated on what's called an isthmus. In fact, if we zoom in even more, you'll see you've got Corinth on the north there, Cancri on the west. Uh, because of sedimentation, uh, those would have literally been right on the coast. Like, there wouldn't have been that distance between Corinth and the coast at the time of Paul's writing. But, but I point that out to say that in order for ships, uh, merchants, to travel from the east to the west and the west to the east, it would save them a whole lot of time instead of going all the way around the south point of Greece and back up to Rome to just go through this little isthmus right here. And what happened was all of the trade routes that went from the east to the west and the west to the east, they ended up stopping through the city of Cancria and the city of Corinth. So I believe that in the mind of God, God saw Paul, a man who was full of the Holy Ghost, a man who was filled with the Spirit, who was dedicated and surrendered to the will of God, the words of God, the wants of God, as we talked about this morning. God led this man, Paul, to the city of Corinth, not just because there were people who needed to be saved there, but because God wanted a church situated smack dab in the middle of people who would literally go to the, every corner of the Roman Empire. This church was a church that had a mission commissioned to them by God Almighty, by the very nature of where their church was situated. It was not only a strategic church, it was a spiritual church. These people in the church, they understood spiritual truth. They knew what it meant uh, to exercise their spiritual gifts. I don't have got time to go into all of the specific passages, but these people, uh, there's a certain sense in which they kind of uh, knew what it meant to walk in the Spirit. They, they had access to spiritual power, and they knew how to access that spiritual power in the life of God. So here were these people, and you think those two things would be a power-packed combination, right? They were in a prime location where God could use them, and they understood the spiritual truth they needed to get the job done. However, there was a problem. The problem was is that it was a self-imploding church. Um, this church, if I could say it this way, was a self focused church and not an outward focused church oh gentlemen i need the volume up sorry told you maybe okay this is it we're going out 
First call, time to be a hero. Brennan, come on, let's go, get this. Get this. The heroes. Rook! Yeah? Hold on there, Rook, we're not going out on this one. Why, why not? We're not ready. We're not. No, we're not, you just go back to bed, I'll let you know, all right? Go on. We're training. No, no, no. The, the alarm. We're just training. Go. Go. We're training. Do it. Go. No, 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 no. Not until this place is spotless. Let's go. No, no, no. Keep working out. We're not strong enough yet. No, 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 no. Not yet. It's not a good time. Not a good time. Hey, come on. The fajitas will burn. Calm down. Oh, I just got comfortable. Somebody shut that thing off. It's the best part. Nope. No, no, no. Nope, nope. No, no, it's not safe. I'm not feeling it. Not safe? Seriously? We're firefighters. Slow down there, overachiever. We don't even know if people out there like firefighters. I'm not feeling called. I'm not feeling it. People are dying out there. No, people die every day, rookie. Don't you think something's wrong here? I mean, isn't it strange that we're a fire station? We don't even put out fires? Nope. We're not getting this one. There's other stations. Come on, it's right next door. Hey, if they want our help, they come and ask us. Well, we go over there acting like we're the big shots. We got all the answers. Hey, they may not even want our help. Help me! Hey, they could be talking to anyone. You firefighters, help me! I gotta catch this call here. You know, um, can I say this? God has chosen every church to be a church that's on mission, to be a church with a purpose. The Corinthian church may have had a strategic location, but the fact of the matter is, is every church is in a strategic location, and every church has people that God intends for us to rescue. And yet, as you kind of heard in that video, and it's somewhat humorous, though it's frankly absolutely disgraceful and sad, you know, uh, we're not ready yet. <laughs> We're not strong enough. Not until this place is spick and span. I'm not feeling it. I just got comfortable. How much does that describe you? You know, the fact of the matter is, is sometimes we can focus so much on our own needs or our own problems that we never get out of ourselves to go and do what God has called us to do, and that is to win souls to Jesus Christ. So that being said, let me just give a little bit of a background here. Paul had led these people to Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. He had uh, spent a year and a half training them, equipping them, 
making them, teaching them exactly what they needed to know, uh, training them in how to accomplish their mission, and then Paul continued on because he couldn't stay there forever. Well, what happened is not too long after he had left, he received uh, uh, from a variety of different sources uh, some concerning news about the city, uh, the the church there at Corinth. Um, And because of these concerning Uh, of these concerns that Paul received, he sat down to write the letter uh, to the church of Corinth, the letter we now know of today as the first epistle to the Corinthians. And and if you study through the book, you'll actually, it'll almost seem like it's a a bulleted list of concerns and issues that he's concerned about. If you study chapters 1 through 4, you will find that there is a fighting problem there in the church. Everybody seemed to be taking sides. They seem to be arguing over this issue, that issue. Well, so-and-so baptized me, and, well, you know, I follow so-and-so, and, and, well, you know, I don't follow any man. I follow Jesus. And Paul's estimation of all of that was that you're carnal. And the fact is, is you're living like lost people. He said the root issue of that kind of carnality was pride. Chapters 1 through 4, study it out sometime. That's not my point here tonight. Not only was there a fighting problem, there was also a fornication problem in the church. In chapter 5, you find particularly there was a man who was doing uh, pretty wicked, terrible things uh, in his home, as a matter of fact, and the church was doing absolutely nothing to deal with the issue. And Paul had to write and say, listen, don't you realize that one day you're going to judge angels? (laughs) If you're going to judge angels, don't you think you have a moral responsibility to judge those and to deal with those issues in your midst. And when he gets into into chapter 7, he has some things to say about how to stay pure in an impure world. But when we get down to uh, chapters 8 through 14, I believe this is where Paul gets to the heart of the matter and really the heart of what I'm trying to get at here this evening. He's dealing with a focus problem. Uh, As a matter of fact, in chapter 8, if I could kind of summarize it, what we see there is, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with fill in the blank. There at that time, it was an issue of meat offered to idols, but the fact of the matter is, their focus was on what they felt like they could do and not on how it would affect others. Do you see how there's a focus issue there? In chapter 9, their their focus was, well, you know, but I have a right to do X, Y, or Z. When the fact of the matter is, by insisting on their rights in these particular circumstances, they were actually neglecting their responsibility. And chapter 10 through 14, and again, there's more I could say here, but to just kind of summarize those chapters, Paul was saying, it's not about you. Selfish worship. Listen, it's not about you. Uh, You get into chapter 12, don't you realize you're a body, and as a body, you you should be on mission. All lockstep together accomplishing the same objectives chapter 14 that's what love is all about love isn't focusing on oneself love is dying to self is sacrificing oneself for the good of others in fact i think the outward focus church is a church that has learned how to access god's love chapter 14 he applies this whole it's not about you this whole focus issue to the church and worship services in particular. And I don't have time to go into all of that here today. But what I want to do here today is I just want to focus in on some things in chapter 9. So if you could look with me in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, and I'll try to get through this quickly here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let me just say this. There were some in the church that didn't like their preacher. 
There were some in the church uh, of Corinth that had a beef with the Apostle Paul. And I don't have time to go into all the reasons, uh, but uh, suffice it to say, you will catch from the first couple verses here that not everything is hunky-dory in the church at Corinth. Chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says this, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Verse 3, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Now, before we continue reading, I just want you to understand that it seemed that Paul was under the harsh eye of scrutiny uh, before those people in Corinth. And he is, in a certain sense, trying to answer uh, some of what they were examining him about. And he does that in the next several verses, verse number four. Before I read verses four, five, and six, I want you to note that there's a word repeated in each one of these verses that is absolutely key for understanding what in the world's going on in this chapter. Uh, let's go ahead and read these. We'll see if you can notice the word. Verse 4. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Did you notice what the word was that was repeated? What was it? Power. You know, the Bible word for power could have two different ideas. On the one hand, you could have the idea of ability. Do you have the power to lift 500 pounds? Do you have the power to pull a 13,000-pound trailer with your little Ford Ranger? Probably not, if that was the case. Uh, but the idea of, some of the idea in the Bible of the word power is ability. But on the other side of things, there are some times when the word power is used that it's not talking about ability. It's talking about authority. In other words, it's not do you have the ability to do it, it's do you have the right to do these things. And the way Paul phrases these questions in these three verses, he in essence is asking the question, don't I have the right to this or to this or to this? And in fact, the very way the verses are phrased is he's actually saying this, I have the right to do this, don't I? I have the right to do this, do I not? I have the right to do this, don't I? And as we look at the verses here, I think it'll make sense once we look at this in that light. Verse 4, he says, have we not the right to eat and to drink? Gentlemen, aren't you glad that you have the right to choose your own meal plan? Aren't you glad you have the right to order a double quarter pounder at McDonald's instead of the salad? Aren't you glad that you have the right to eat bacon? Can I get an amen? Aren't you glad that you don't have to eat healthy if you don't want to? I don't know about you. I'm really glad about that. I'm glad that I get a chance to eat burgers. I love burgers. Is anybody else with me? Does anybody else love burgers? Oh, man, I love burgers. You know, here in this verse, Paul's saying, listen, I have the right uh, to choose my meal plan. I have the right to eat and to drink. And kind of actually uh, uh, implied by this is that he has a right to be fed by the church there at Corinth. And he's saying, listen, I have the right 
to eat what I want to eat and drink what I want to drink within certain biblical constraints, obviously. But I have the right to eat and to drink, and I actually have the right for you to feed me, he says to the church there at Corinth. Okay, that's a legitimate right, kind of a universal right. Uh, the right to choose your meal plan for one, but the right for um, a missionary like him to be supported by the people that he's ministering unto. But he says next here, he says, or have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the apostles of the Lord, uh, brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? In other words, don't I have the right, uh, if I was married, to bring my wife with me as I travel? Or you could say it this way, don't I have the right to choose my own team? Don't I have the right as a traveling minister to bring who I want to bring with me as we go throughout our various missionary journeys, preaching the gospel and seeing people saved? That's a legitimate right. He's saying, listen, I have the right to bring who I want to bring with me. Don't I? Thirdly here, the next verse here, he says, have we not uh, or I only in Barnabas, have not we power or the right to forbear working? In other words, here he's saying, I have the right, um, I have the right to paid compensation. I have the right to quit my day job and to be supported exclusively by the giving of God's people. This is what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, listen, this is a legitimate right. And if I can just say this, Paul had legitimate rights, and so do you. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to be an American, aren't you? I'm thankful to have the right to worship freely. I'm thankful that I have the right to choose where I want to live. Or if I want to settle down in one place, I have the right to choose that. I'm glad that I have the right to cross state lines. I'm glad that I have the right to refuse a shot if I want to. I'm glad that I have the right uh, to wear a mask or not wear a mask these days. Anybody glad for that right? I'm glad that as an American, I have the Constitution of the United States that genuinely and legitimately recognizes my God-given rights. Aren't you glad for that? And let me say, there's a certain sense in which Paul here in this passage is saying, listen, I have God-given rights about a few things. Because that last one is the most controversial of all of them, um, in fact, it's part of the, uh, the issue between him and the Corinthians, I don't have time to get into that, but he goes on and he actually backs that with a little bit of argumentation. Uh, in the next verse here, verse 7, uh, regarding that, that right to paid compensation, he says, Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? In other words, who joins the military and pays for their own gear? That's not how it works normally. There's standard implement. There's stuff that's given to you as a uh, part of the U.S. military. You don't pay for that stuff. It's given to you. I'm sure there are things you pay for, but not not the basics here. Uh, who, he says, who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? In other words, who plants grapes and doesn't take some of the grapes and eat them? That's just kind of how it works, right? Or, he goes on and says, or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? If you raise milk cows... You're not going to go buy milk from the store. You're going to drink the milk from your milk cows, right? And you know what? You have a right to that, don't you? That is a legitimate right. It's just the way things work. 
Now remember, the point that he's making is, listen, I have the right to quit my day job and to be supported by the giving of God's people. He says he has that particular right because that's the way things work. Now let me ask you a very important question. Do we prove doctrine through human illustrations? Yes or no? Do we get doctrine because it makes sense? Is that how we figure out what's true and what's not? Yes or no? No. Nobody, listen, if a preacher stands up in a pulpit and gives a human illustration that makes sense to you but is not biblical, don't believe that man. Because we get our doctrine, as we talked about this morning, from the Word of God, from the words of Scripture. So that being said, Paul just made a statement. I have the right to do this, don't I? And by the way, it's how things work for the soldier, for the guy who tends to a vineyard, for the guy who raises milk cows. But he anticipates that question here. Verse number 8, he says, Say I these things as a man. And I, am I just proving my point with human illustrations? Or... Saith not the law the same also? Am I just proving my point by standing up and saying things that make sense? Or do I have Bible on this matter? Well, he has Bible, verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. In other words, he's saying here, listen, here's my Bible verse, my proof text for the fact that a preacher of the gospel, whether that be a pastor, evangelist, whatever it might be, has the right to quit their day job and to be supported exclusively by the giving of God's people. Here's my proof text. Are you ready for it? Don't put a muzzle on the ox that's working in the field. That doesn't make a lot. Like, is that... Is, is that uh, allegorical interpretation, Pastor? <laughs> is, is that, like, that kind of seems like a little bit of a stretch, doesn't it? Well, he actually, once again, I love how Paul reasons these things through. He kind of asks that question. He says at the end of verse 9, Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sake? In other words, this verse that I just read, this verse that I am providing as my proof text, is God only talking about oxen, or is there some timeless truth or principle in this command that can apply to this situation that I'm speaking about? And of course, he gives the answer, for our sakes, middle of verse 10, for our sakes, no doubt this is written, here is the timeless truth, that he that ploweth should plow in hope and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. So in other words, that cow who's working in the field, he ought to be able to glean some through his selfless labor to take care of his own needs, the needs in his however many stomachs he has. And he says, listen, those who are laboring in the fields need to be able to labor in hope with their needs taken care of. Okay. Why is he saying all of this? Well, in verse 11, he says, if we, if we, and by we, he's talking about him and his evangelistic team, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things, your material things? If others, he says, verse 12, be partakers of this power, this right over you, 
are not we rather, or the idea of that phrase is, don't we deserve it even more? Now, I understand everybody feels really uncomfortable right now because I'm talking about money, okay? And let me just say this. Here at the, before I, I continue digging through, Paul is not angling for money in this passage, and I'm not either. Just make that super clear. There is a much bigger point going on here in this passage. Just get it. Don't feel awkward. This is, this is Bible, right? Okay? But there's a greater point here. He just made this point. Listen, I have legitimate rights. You have legitimate rights. I have the right to paid compensation for my labor in the harvest field. It is a legitimate right. I just proved it to you from the way things work, from Old Testament principle. And actually, he proves it from one other thing in verse 13. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live or derive their living from the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of, derive their living from the gospel. So he's saying here, listen, not only is it just the way things work in the world, not only is there Bible principle on this, but furthermore, he says, look at the closest comparison that we have in the Old Testament. The servants in the temple, those who labor in the temple. People give money to the temple, and guess what? Some of that money goes to pay those men for their time. In fact, when you look at even the altar and how they offer this meat, did you know that some of the meat offered goes home with the priest? To feed him and his family. That is the principle in living color. And he says, listen, I have my rights. Everybody's still feeling uncomfortable. It's okay. I want you to look back up at the middle of verse 12. Okay, yes, it is true. You have legitimate rights. Paul had legitimate rights, and they're not just regarding paid compensation. We have the right to retirement. We have the right to recreation. We have the right to enjoy our family, our time. We have the right to have a hobby. We have the right to choose what kind of vehicle we want to buy. There are all kinds of rights that we have as human beings, as American citizens, and I am so thankful that I have the right to eat bacon. Okay? Follow me. Middle of verse 12, though. He says, nevertheless, we have not used this power. Remember, the word power, it means right here in this chapter. But suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Jump down to verse 15. He says, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glory void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He's saying here essentially this. Listen, I have legitimate rights, and so do you. But there are times and moments when my legitimate rights come into conflict with something. And that is my responsibility to preach the gospel to every creature. Rights don't always come into conflict with those. 
and rights are biblical. There are some rights that you absolutely ought to insist on and you absolutely ought to fight for. But there do come some times where the exercising of your rights come into conflict with your biblical responsibility to declare Jesus to those around you. And you get this here. He's saying, listen, I have not used these things because... He says, I don't want to hinder, verse 12, the gospel of Christ. In fact, if you look down at verse number 17, he says, for if I do this thing willingly, if I give my life for the sake of the gospel, I have a reward, but if against my will, if I don't cooperate with God's program, he says, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. And that's kind of a hard phrase. And again, I recognize that there are different ways that God worked with people. I'm not denying that by making this statement, but the idea of the word dispensation is related to the word dispense. He's saying, listen, whether I cooperate with God or not, I still have a responsibility, an obligation, a job that has been dispensed to me by God. In other words, my cooperation or lack doesn't change my obligation. I still have an obligation to preach the gospel. Verse 18, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power, my right in the gospel. Listen, Paul here in this passage is saying, I have my rights. Remember, to back up a little bit more of the overall flow of this, it's a strategic church in a strategic location. They understood spiritual truth. They had a mission. But because their focus was not on their mission, their focus was on themselves in a variety of different ways. One of those self-focused issues was on their rights. The fact was is their, their rights were coming into conflict with their responsibility. And instead of Paul coming out and pointing his finger at them, he's saying, let me tell you how I operate. I have have my rights too. I have the right to be paid by you Corinthians. But get it. Mark it down. Have I taken a red cent from you? And the answer was no. And here's why. Again, Paul had a unique circumstance in his travels, his pioneering missions. There were cultural phenomena. I won't get into all of that. But Paul here is saying this. Listen, I would rather go penniless and see people saved than to be fully provided for and to abuse my rights in the gospel. In other words, let me say it this way. You have legitimate rights, but yet you must limit them. Paul here was saying, listen, I have my rights, but I don't always use them. There were some times when he did. But here he says, I do not. Here in this case, in this circumstance, I'm not using them. I am limiting the exercise of my rights. Why is he limiting the exercise of his rights? Because he wants to fully fulfill his responsibility. Now, let me say this. He goes on. He says in verse 19, he says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant or slave unto all that I might gain the more. The idea of the word gain is to win them. To Christ to win people to Christ he says listen though I technically am free from obligation for all what I've done instead that's my right I'm free 
I am free. That is my right. Yet you know what I've decided to operate as? I've decided to operate as a slave so that I can win more people to Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I became as under the law that I might gain them or win them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. What we find here in this section is Paul saying, listen, I have my rights, but I limit them. And the reason why I limit them is for optimum effectiveness. In other words, if I insist on my rights, I will be abusing them and I will hinder the gospel. Those two words were used previously in the section that we saw. I will be abusing them and I will hinder the gospel. I don't want to do that because the A number one priority of my life is for my witness to work. It's for people to get saved. And so I am conscious in whatever group of people that I'm working with to limit my rights so as not to hinder my effectiveness at reaching them with the gospel. Let me give an illustration. At the beginning here, he talks about to the Jews I became as a Jew. I want you to imagine that you in your workplace, you work with somebody who is a practicing Jew. And imagine if they come up to you during the day and they say, hey, sir, I've been watching you. I understand that you believe that my Messiah came already. And to be honest with you, I'm not so sure. However, what I would like to do is I would like tomorrow, I'd like to go out to lunch with you. And I'd like to sit down. I'd like for you to show me from my Bible, from the Old Testament, that the one you say came fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Could we sit down and do that tomorrow? And I'm sure none of you would say no, right? <laughs> I think all of us would be like, oh, this is great. I need to talk to Pastor Kagan, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> Pastor, they come to Pastor's office. Pastor, do you have any resources that I can have to show me all the Old Testament prophecies? And, you know, how can I do this? How should I approach this? And, man, you stand all evening, maybe even into the wee hours of the morning, preparing, writing notes, marking up your Bible, putting little bookmarks in your Bible. And that next day, you come into lunch, um, and you're excited. You're thinking, <clears throat> somebody's going to get saved. This is going to be great. And you sit down. And they hand, hand you some menus, right? Your friend is there. And your friend, uh, the waitress, comes up. You know, hey, what do you want? And, you know, they open this up and they, they point down at something. Oh, this right here. Is this kosher? She says, uh, let me check. You know, goes out, comes back. Yeah, it's kosher. Okay, I'll have that then. And then they look to you. And the last thing you thought of is what you're going to eat, right? But, you know, down on the bottom right of the menu, there is this little cutout with this amazing picture of a BLT club. Oh, I'm telling you, what God has cleansed, call not thou unclean. You got other Bible verses coming through your mind right now, right? And you're looking at this bacon, lettuce, and tomato club. You're seeing the mayonnaise drip off of it in the picture. You're seeing just, oh, it's, it's always better in the pictures than it is in real life, right? And you're looking at this thing, and your mouth is watering. You are salivating, and you're thinking, oh, 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 oh I'm glad I'm a New Testament believer. Let me ask you a question. Should you order the BLT club, yes or no? You bunch of legalists. 
Don't you have a right to order a BLT club? Don't you have a right to eat what you want to eat and drink what you want to drink? Don't you? Are, are you saying that it's sinful to eat a BLT club? No, it's not. In fact, God's fine with you eating a BLT club. However, get this. You have your rights, but you must limit them in that scenario for optimum effectiveness. Now, again, maybe you're not so versed in what I'm talking about. I'm a little confused. You've got to understand that the Jewish nation had a number of distinctives about their people that were greatly under siege, especially during the intertestamental periods. Uh, they were not allowed to practice their distinctives that kind of retain, retain their distinctiveness as a nation, and because of that, really during that time, they became very polarized in exercising their Jewishness, one of which was the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Um, they were not allowed to eat pork. It was uh, something that was kind of a sore spot. Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe, actually sacrificed a pig in the altar in the temple, one of the most insulting things they could possibly do. And so as a result, many people in New Testament times to this day, Jewish folks, man, if you, if you are claiming that Jesus is the next phase and the unfolding of God's revelation, if you're claiming that he is our Messiah and he lets you eat pork, to many Jews that'd be a bridge too far. And to many Jews that would cause them to stumble at the gospel and very likely not get saved. And here's the thing, but you have your rights. You know what, if you were to proceed and order a BLT sandwich and say, man, they could just deal with it, you would be abusing your rights and you would be hindering the gospel. Do you see how that works? That could be applied to a number of different circumstances, but here what he's saying is, listen, I have my rights, but I limit them for the sake of optimum effectiveness. Listen, here in this passage he's saying, listen, I am serving. I am being a slave to others so that I can win them to Jesus Christ. But he turns this and he gives one more analogy here in this chapter, and then I'll be done here. He goes on and he says in verse number 24, he said he kind of switches analogies from what he's talking about and being a slave and, and to so-and-so being such and such. And here in verse number 24, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. That's a profound statement. Everybody who runs in a race runs. Duh. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but one receiveth the prize. Everybody runs in a race, but only one person gets the gold medal, right? That's how it works. Uh, participation prizes nowadays, but listen, that's the way it ought to work, right? He says, listen, everybody runs in a race, but only one person gets first place. He says, so run. Run like that, that ye may obtain. And what does he mean by obtain? A lot of people totally divorce this section from the context of what's going on here. Remember, he's not just talking about the general race of the Christian life. What he's talking about here is running to win them to Christ. He says, don't just labor for the participation award. Don't just go soul winning to put in your time. Don't just do what you do and say what you say. Listen, in other words, he's saying this. Listen, if you were to insist on your rights, you might be participating, but you're not going to win them. 
Don't just run for exercise. Run to win them to Christ. He goes on. He says in verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. He's talking about somebody, you know, in, a, in an athletic competition. Those of you athletes that are training for some kind of an event, there are some things you just don't eat, especially the night before. A, if you're running a marathon the next day, I guarantee you're not going to eat a gallon of ice cream the night before. At least, I don't know. You know, Justin might have something else to say about that. He had a lot of good hacks about what you do before working out and everything. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think a gallon of ice cream would work. I just can't imagine that would work, right? Right before a giant race. Something tells me that that would hinder that person's performance, right? That good old word temperance, limiting oneself. Some things that you could do, but you choose not to do. It's a lost art these days. But he says, every man who striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. I'm running that guy who's in it to win it, not like the guy who's in it to raise his heart rate. Okay? I am in this thing to win, not as uncertainly, he says. I'm not in here just to wing it and hope something happens. I'm not in it just to chuck some Play-Doh against the wall and hope it sticks. He says, I'm not doing this just kind of hoping maybe perhaps one day it'll all work out. I'm being intentional about this. And what he's teaching the Corinthians is that if you insist on your rights, you will limit your effectiveness. And though you may want to win people to Christ, you won't. He switches analogies again. He said, not as one that beateth, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. And I think what he's saying here is, listen, in a boxing match, you want your fist to connect, don't you? <laughs> right? It's kind of a waste of time if you miss. And he's saying, listen, I'm not running to participate. I'm not running to get to the finish line. I'm running to win them to Christ. I'm not boxing just to get my arm out there. I am swinging to connect, so to speak. And he says in verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. If we let our rights and our desires rule our life, you may preach to others, but it will not be received. Put it to you this way. How many of you have ever won a free car in the mail? You know what I'm talking about? You get a key to a car in the mail. Anybody ever got one? I don't know if they're still doing those these days. I remember as a teenager, you know, this really cool-looking package, you know, like a like letter-looking thing came, and they had the little see-through plastic spot, and there was a key right in there, and it was addressed to me. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, Dad, they just sent me keys to a car. They just gave me a car. Dad, this is awesome. And my dad just kind of looked at me like, well, you'll learn, right? <laughs> it wasn't what it appeared to be. It was not legit, right? You know what we do with those, uh, you know, with those offers to, you know, you know, especially those phone calls, right? <laughs> you get those phone calls, you know, your computer has been hacked, et cetera, and so on. It kind of makes you not even want to pick up the phone anymore if it's a n phone you, number you don't recognize. Anybody else with me? You know, you get certain kinds of things in the mail that say you want a billion dollars, you know, that say you want a car, 
You know where those things go after a while? You may open them up the first couple times, right? But after a while, do you open them up anymore? No, they just go straight into the junk pile. Because you have learned by experience, they're not the real deal. And can I say this, friends? If we insist on our rights and abuse them so as to hinder our responsibility, oh, we may preach from time to time. The folks will see right through it, and they'll take our message and they'll put it in the junk pile. You know, an outward-focused church is a church that is not focused on themselves. They're, they're not focused on what they think is fine or what they think they have a right to do. They are relentlessly, ruthlessly focused on what's good for others. And this is just one small section of this greater section where Paul's addressing the focus issue of this particular church. And I guess I'd just like to ask you here this evening, how successful are you at fulfilling your responsibility? How successful are you at insisting on your rights? Chances are, is if you're real good at one, you're probably not so good at the other. And I don't know about me, I take what he said earlier, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, I take that pretty seriously. Can I just say this as I conclude? My family gives up a lot to do what we do. I guarantee your pastor and his family give up a lot to do what they do too. There's a very real sense in which those who are relentlessly pursuing God's will have to make a lot of priority judgment calls. There's a lot of things that I could have that I don't. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to buy a home, took a look at it, made a low offer I thought maybe we could afford. At the end of the day, it turned out, you know what, they didn't even answer my offer because it was so low. That's kind of an oops on my part. But you know what, there came a point in time when our old trailer was falling apart, and I had to make a decision. Am I going to just limp that thing along forever and buy a home, or am I going to keep my priority on what God has called me to do, buy a new trailer? Listen, folks, I'm just saying this. I, listen, I could say that I have a right to have a home one day, and maybe God will give me one. I don't know. Frankly, I, I love what I'm doing. But here's the thing. My responsibility to preach the gospel trumps all. It trumps all, and that's not just because I'm an evangelist that does this full time. What rights are you insisting on that are holding you back from fulfilling your responsibility? I would challenge you to ruthlessly evaluate your own life and ask yourself the question, what right am I abusing that in effect is hindering my effectiveness at preaching the gospel? Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for Paul and his candor here in this chapter. Thank you, Lord, for these people. I, I know these people. They love, they love souls. They love to reach people with the gospel. This church is an outward-focused church. And yet I know in my own life there have been so many times where I've had to make my own priority decisions. I've had to get readjusted, so to speak. And I just pray, God, that you would take this passage that you led me to preach here tonight and you would use it in hearts. I pray that you would take some that are somewhat effective in preaching the gospel and make them more effective. I pray that you would take some that are useless in declaring the gospel 
and bring them to the point where they are mightily used by you. Lord, I know that you have an agenda for this. I know you led me to preach this, and I pray, God, that you would use it in hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.